0: Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to Scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. You know, I just have to say that it's been really encouraging to hear from a lot of people about the benefit they're getting from some of these podcast episodes. So thank you for reaching out, whether it be in person or through email or anything like that. I I really appreciate hearing how some of these podcast episodes and blog articles are helping people think through issues. And, you know, I do not ever take that as a uh, affirmation that somebody is always agreeing with me on everything. I would never take it that way. I'm just encouraged that people are getting some thought provoking elements out of some of these episodes. And so that's that's a huge blessing. Praise the Lord that that's uh, a possibility in today's day and age, doing these kinds of things. And last episode, we did a review of another podcast episode, and I think that was helpful just as far as hearing what uh, someone thought from a Unitarian perspective, denying the Trinity, et cetera, and thinking through some of those issues. And I have on my bucket list if you will of podcast episodes another uh episode that was added to the list uh through one of the Facebook groups that I keep tabs on sometimes somebody posted a interview which took place at a G3 conference which took place about mid to end January uh this this year in 2020 and there was a interview with Gary Demar And Gary DeMar is a well-known post-millennial advocate, and he's basically interviewed on the rapture because he's just come out with a new book uh, trying to refute the rapture. And so I think going through this interview will be at least a little helpful in understanding how some individuals uh, think uh, erroneously, really, about the rapture and how they apply it to everyday life. And I want to do kind of this review for really two reasons. One because I think it's helpful to expose, really, I mean, there's really no way other to say this, expose straw men argumentation. I think that there is unfortunately a uh, variety of this straw man, hey, let's paint this picture of dispensational or rapture theology, which just crumbles. And so let's destroy that. When in reality, that's not at all what typical rapture proponents would believe. And then second of all, I think it's also helpful for those who are in the postmillennial camp or even in the amillennial camp to actually have an accurate response to say, hey, actually that's not what they believe or that's not a fair representation of their view. So I, I am thankful that I have friends that are in every eschatological position imaginable. Uh, you have amillennial, postmillennial, uh, and of course the, the pan millennial position where, you know, they're agnostic about the, uh, end times as it were. So anyway, we're going to go through this review because, uh, I think it's helpful, uh, thought exercise. It's an interview that was done on a podcast called Cross Politic, which, is a relatively well-known podcast. Uh, they did it at the G three conference. I'm working off the YouTube video because they also work on the YouTube channel, and I think it'll be helpful uh, listening to Demar and his argumentation. Uh, you can kind of there's four different voices uh, which are talking, and the main one who's answering all the questions is is who we're going to pay most attention to, which would be Gary Demar. We're jumping in at the 40-second mark after all the introductions and everything like that.
1: So when's the rapture going to happen? It isn't. <laughs> what? It's not. When? There is no such thing. <laughs> oh,
0: okay. Start from the beginning. <laughs> explain <laughs> to me like I'm four. Okay.
1: Because <laughs> <laughs> he is. <laughs> uh, well, you know, they uh, everybody uses Daniel 9, chapters 24, uh, verses 24 and 27. Are you listening? Are you listening, Matt? We have a real life real life right here. Just preach uh, to him. Yeah, just and look at him. They find
0: now that they're doing uh it's a live show, a live podcast, so they're they're calling out to the audience right there for for uh one of their friends that is a, a proponent of the rapture. And uh Damar is stating that everybody uses Daniel nine for the rapture and arguing for that. So I'm gonna play more of his comments here because I think it's really kind of strange, in one sense, how he argues this.
1: The Antichrist in that in those those four verses, they find uh, uh, a, a, the Antichrist making a covenant with the Jews. They find the Antichrist breaking the covenant with the Jews, mm-hmm. rebuilding mm-hmm. the temple. All of this, all of this end time philosophy. Uh, dealing with uh, the rapture, whether it's pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, partial partial rapture, or pre-wrath raptures, all dependent on Daniel chapter 9, verses uh, 20, uh, 24 through 27. Mm. And yet... All right.
0: So I just want to stop right there. So he said everyone is dependent, or everyone relies on Daniel 9, 24 through 27, and the entire... Reliance of the viewpoint of the rapture is uh, found in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. Now, we've done a podcast on the rapture. Uh, That was from July 27th, 2018. You can go back and look it up, entitled, When is the Rapture? And you'll notice that when we're talking about the rapture from the typical dispensational viewpoint, Daniel 9, 24 through 27 is not the crux of our argument. In fact, I'm listening to him say that, and, you know, I suppose that there are people who would argue from Daniel 9 that the rapture is there, but typically Daniel 9 is a foundation for Daniel's 70 weeks, which is obviously in play there, and the interpretation of whether or not the Antichrist is found in that passage is definitely a big interpretive issue, and that should be addressed. However, the timing of the rapture or whether or not the rapture takes place is typically not brought out from Daniel 9. In fact, I'm I'm not sure uh, who he's referring to specifically. I think I read in a YouTube comment or something like that, that he was targeting Hal Linsley, but I'm just really not familiar with uh, his arguments because he's typically not viewed as a good representation of theology. So I'm not sure about his beliefs, but typically the churches I've grown up in, the seminary professors I've had, uh, they do not argue this way. So I'm not sure this is good argumentation. Well, let me just be fair. It's not argumentation when you say this is the main argument that people use when that is not the argument that people use. So it's kind of a Uh, misrepresentation of the viewpoint, obviously, and he's making it very
1: adamantly here. All of the necessary elements for all five of the rapture uh, uh, positions, none of those elements are actually in that particular passage. So where are they pulling it from? So how are they getting that? Uh, Well, the easy answer is they're just making it up. Uh, <laughs> this, oh, wait, okay, but, maybe <laughs> but there's a there's a there's a prior conception that they have to maintain, and that is that there is a fundamental distinction between Israel and the church, and that right. God can only deal with Israel and not the church at the same time. So you got to get the church off the.
0: Now that's uh, so. There's a huge uh, presumption he's making there, and he's really switching the order, which is big for somebody like myself who would hold to a rapture position. Uh, but this isn't actually inherent to the rapture position. It's more of an observation from the text. What he's saying is that the rapture has a formulated viewpoint. And so they have to force, uh, the, the people of Israel out of the world because God can only deal with one people at a time. Now that's, Uh, complete misrepresentation because what the church would argue today is that God is dealing with the people of Israel as a ethnic entity even today. And he's also dealing with the church. So Israel and the church even exist as entities today. So God is very clearly working with nations and the church today. In fact, we would say, uh, well, anybody who studies the Bible should acknowledge that God works on the individual level as well as the national level. So that's really kind of a uh, poor representation, again, a poor argument saying that uh, rapture proponents have to get this system to work out when really what we are doing is we are using the text, or this is is what we would explain our position as, is that we are noting from Daniel from Revelation that it seems that Israel has a a special dealing with them. And so when you get to Revelation, for example, the mention of the church uh, is absent from the latter chapters. So that would be a natural observation from our part as we're thinking through that, that possibly uh, God is dealing with Israel at that point and the church is not present. That just seems like a possible explanation for that. And so when we're talking through that, we would like to say we're using textual observations like the absence of the mention of the church at the end of Revelation, et cetera, to then build a supposition that perhaps the church is not present at that time. But the way he's saying it is that that's already our presupposition that we have to have this division And so in order to do that, we're forcing that onto the text when really we would say it's the other way around where we're trying to work with some observations that are found in the text. And there does seem to be a distinction between the Israel that we see as ethnic Israel and the church. Now, in line with that, he goes on to talk about how this church Israel distinction is key. So we're going to bump over to that just really quick. It's just a couple of seconds down the, the road. The church is taken
1: off in the middle of, the, of that seven-year period. Right. Said, no, and no, and no, no. the go just prior to the wrath of God being poured out. Mm-hmm. But that church-Israel distinction is the key to it all. So they got to find all of this and make it work. And so they went to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. they got to find the Antichrist who does all this, makes a covenant with the Jews, breaks the covenant, uh, rebuilds the temple.
0: All right, so he's going to keep talking about the Antichrist, which I want to make a a note about as well, but he's saying that this church-Israel distinction is key to making it work, and I would just say I think that the distinction between Israel and the church is really important, but some of my dispensational brethren who hold to a pre-tribulational rapture do not actually hold that. And so what I would say is if what he's saying is true, then there would be no progressive dispensationalists who hold to one people of God, uh, who would say that the church and Israel are very close. Uh, traditionally, dispensationalists have marked a division between Israel and the church. But uh, more progressive dispensationalists have argued closer at times with covenant uh, believers that there is one people of God. And even in the Old Testament, there is a less, dis- uh, less firm distinction. In fact, some may even, uh, I'm not sure if anyone would use the term church in the Old Testament, but some may be comfortable with that kind of ideology. In fact, one individual that I was familiar with, Craig Blazing, who is one of the individuals who argues for the pre-trib rapture in some of the uh, three, three Views series, He's a strong proponent of the pre-trib rapture, but he's actually a little less firm in his distinction uh, between Israel and the church as other dispensationalists. He would hold to the Davidic covenant in operation, which a lot of dispensationalists would not. And he would also say that the church is essentially an inauguration of the kingdom age using already not yet language which that kind of language is often found in covenantal uh amillennial, uh even post millennial circles and so dispensationalists can cross over you know using that kind of language and the reason I bring this up is is simply because you can't broad brush this issue with with regard to that uh the fact daniel nine isn't the crux passage where if you suddenly take Daniel 9 out, there's no argument for the rapture. And furthermore, the distinction between church and Israel, while important in biblical theology, is really not the driving force behind uh, our reading of biblical passages. And so I think, again, you know, it's just uh, a lot of misrepresentation, I think, here. So he goes on then to uh, basically assert that these are manufactured doctrines uh, and this is actually, uh, this is a very interesting uh, phrase, so I'm going to play his quote here because I'm really not sure what he means by this, and so, you know, if somebody can help me, that'd be great.
1: Uh, and so it's it's a manufactured doctrine in order to to prop up an existing doctrine that they Im- import into so many pe- passages of Scripture. Take, for example...
0: So, that, that I did not understand what he said there. It's a manufactured doctrine in order to prop up an existing doctrine... That they import into existing passages of scripture. So, so, I'm not sure what the manufactured doctrine is and what the already existing doctrine is. Is he? Maybe he's saying that uh, we we are manufacturing the idea of the distinction between Israel and the Church in order to prop up the doctrine of the Rapture, uh, and then we try to find that in passages of scripture. That's the closest thing I can find to what he's saying but it's it's clear to me that uh you know he's he's really not thinking through this with the with the best of the dispensationalists uh because dispensationalists are relatively clear they have to be because they have to uh argue against uh, a lot of this kind of pushback so most of the dispensationalists that i really value like mike vlock uh, Dr. Pettigrew, things like that, they, they've they been very clear about these things. They acknowledge where there are difficulties, but they're always trying to formulate these ideas through the text. And so, you know, it's, it's one of those things where uh, I think that, unfortunately, the challengers to the doctrine of the rapture or dispensationalism in general themselves need to be a little more clear and maybe get some feedback, some good feedback from dispensationalists. All right, so he moves on then to the example of the Antichrist, and I think this is a good example for, again, just a uh, categorical error here on his part.
1: The Antichrist. If I were to Mm -hmm. ask the typical Christian to define for me the Antichrist. Right. And it's amazing that books that are published on the Antichrist rarely deal with the only passages that uh, mention the Antichrist Antichrist and define it. And define it. Hey, maybe we should look at those verses. Yeah, well, (laughs) the. the verse the the basic one is is uh, second 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 John, second jo- second. Well, second John uh, verse 7 yeah. what the bible biblical definition of antichrist is someone who de- who denies that Jesus Christ has right. come in the flesh right. and is a uh, identified with the father that the father has sent him that's a definition of antichrist it's not right. a political figure it's real it's a it's a theological dis- uh uh, dispute that was already going on in the church in John's day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was unbelieving Jews who had dismissed the idea that Jesus was the promised Messiah. They are anti-Christ. They right. are, he's not the Messiah. That's what anti-Christ means. How do we get, though, by the time of the Reformation where we've got the reform?
0: All right. So we have to make a couple comments on that. So he's basically arguing the f- from the fact that this whole concept of anti-Christ doesn't actually use biblical terminology now, the term Antichrist is actually used in four places. You have 1 John 2.18, 2.22, 4.3, and then 2 John 7. That's where the four uses of the term Antichrist occur. And in 2 John 2, or 2 John 7, where he was talking about the Antichrist there, it says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. And so there he's saying, you know, this is the definition that we need to use as Antichrist. Now, that is a very, very simplistic view. And uh, any, I don't understand how you can come up with a view like this without, uh, the, the only rationale I have is that he's never talked to a dispensationalist because the concept of many Antichrists is completely legitimate, but it's it's what James White would call a categorical error or a category error uh, by trying to import this definition into others. I mean, there, there's all sorts of places in scripture and even in our own vernacular uh, where we have concepts that use the same name or same terminology and yet are distinct. For example, in the New Testament, we have reference to apostles, lowercase a, and you have apostles, uppercase A. Now, the same word is used to determine that, yet there is very clearly a categorical distinction between the 12 apostles and the generically sent out apostles. Now, I'm not sure what uh, DeMar thinks on that, but I would be relatively certain that he's a cessationist and that he acknowledges that the apostolic gift is no more. Most individuals do. And so if he does, then he would have to acknowledge that there's a different categorization of apostles. Well, likewise, we even understand that Satan can be referred to as the deceiver, So capital D, he is the deceiver, that's his title, or we can refer to a deceiver, somebody who just deceives people. So those would not be the same thing. We can't just equate them because they use the same word. There would be different categories. And so in the concept of Antichrist, we understand that as 1 John 2.18 spells out very clearly, we know that this is the last hour and you have heard that Antichrist is coming, and so now many Antichrists have come. Well, nobody in their right mind would deny that there are not many Antichrists. We, we wouldn't, because Scripture very clearly talks about that. However, we would also say that the Scripture describes one particular individual who is the summation or culmination of this substitute Christ uh, symbolism. And he is the Antichrist, capital A, in the sense that he embodies what every Antichrist does, but just to the nth degree. So it's not as if we are ignoring what Scripture is teaching or anything like that. We are simply using the categories that Scripture talks about, the Antichrist, the substitute Christ, as a concept. And then we are applying that to the man of lawlessness, the little horn in Daniel, that it's just a a natural concept which uh is easily understandable and explainable so I'm not sure why that's such a big deal for uh Demar and and some apparently others uh in being able to understand that. So remember it's it's a categorical concept where antichrist is uh seen as many, yes, but then also as one in the culmination who leads the ultimate rebellion. Now the The interview moves on thankfully to uh, the rubber meets the road kind of uh kind of issues and uh chocolate Knox, which is the greatest name in the world. Uh, I really like a lot of his work um He's one of the interview uh participants on this panel. He asked Demar about why this is an important issue, and so we're jumping ahead to that and he's going to ask that question
2: um is that? Really, that big of an issue to keep writing that much on? What's the outcome of it? Why does is, it somebody, is somebody's eschatology really going to, you know, bring be that much of a problem that you just can't let it go after yeah. thirty-two books?
1: I know you're just <laughs> asking me that because I know you know the answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did used to work for you. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I think the, the crucial thing is if you're always live, living on the precipice of some eschatological event that's going to be generally a final event, it has 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 the uh, It's the danger of shortening what can be done. If the rapture is right around the corner and all the signs are in place for it to take place, and Jesus is going to take us off the earth, so that when we see events in the Middle East, or if we see abortion, or if we see homosexuality, we say, these are all signs of the end. We can't do anything to change those things because it's a prophetic inevitability. Right,
2: right. 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 So stop mowing your yard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah what you're saying? Yeah. You're saying it, it will tend to people who focus on these things. It will tend to create in them short term thinking. Oh, exactly. Is that, is that what you're saying? Oh, sure. So, give me so. A, so, yeah, work out for me. Then the-
0: OK, so I, I do not like this. This I mean, it saddens me that there's no one there to obviously challenge this. But this idea of short term thinking because you believe in the rapture. So. So in other words, you know, you, you're not going to mow your lawn is the example that they give. Unbelievable. You know, it's just, you know, I just sh- I have to shake my head when I when I hear these things because it's just complete miscategorization and representation. You know, one of the churches that I had the privilege of going to when I was going to school was uh, Grace Community Church. MacArthur's the main pastor there. They are very firmly uh, holding to a pre-tribulation rapture position. And I just remember, and this was as I was really growing in my Christian faith, you know, I had uh, been a Christian for a while, but this was the first time I'd really seen serious Christians. And it it wasn't, I, I never, ever got the feeling that, you know, hey, let's take our foot off the gas because, you know, the life is going to be, uh, you know, over soon. The rapture is going to happen really soon. And so why why work hard? In fact, um, consistently in all of my first uh, doctrine, theology classes in the churches and everything like that, what I would consistently hear was, we don't know when when the rapture is going to be. It could be tomorrow, but it could be a hundred years from now. So we are to be faithful and we are to work hard. And, you know, it's interesting because uh, even when I first heard 2 Thessalonians 3 preached, I just remember thinking, yeah, this makes a lot of sense because in 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul chastises those who would be lazy in light of a eschatological expectation. And he says, hey, you know what? You need to work. Those who do not work shall not eat. And so you work hard. You labor intensely uh, for the Lord. You don't slack on any of your obligations. You you work and you continue to do so. There is, no, there is no slacking when it comes to that. And I've seen Christians who slack and who are lazy, but that's not indicative of their eschatology. That's indicative of the fact that they are struggling and the flesh is winning out over the spirit. And that's a different issue. It's a, it's a heart issue. It's not an eschatology issue. I have never, in my Christian experience, seen somebody who is struggling to be productive or to serve the Lord or to work hard simply because of their eschatology. And if somebody did see that, at least in the churches that I've been a part of, they would be under church discipline right away and chastised and challenged to get their life together. And so to raise this objection against the rapture and say, why is it so important that we need to convince people not to believe in the rapture is really short-sighted on their Aside, uh, I think because I'm not sure, and I know later on in the interview we won't have time. I don't think to get to it. But uh, Chocolate Knox talks about how he grew up in this uh, concept of the rapture, and and he he said that it kind of promoted laziness in in his heart uh, and just a lack of willingness to to do things. It seems, and you know, it's it's interesting to hear a testimony like that because. Somehow I feel like that's uh, not the common experience. I don't want don't to say that he didn't have that experience, but, but I wonder if, if he looked back on his life, if that was more indicative of an ignorance uh, as a whole of what the scripture teaches rather than just uh, relating to the rapture uh, in particular, because a lot of people, when they actually start studying the Bible, they do so holistically and not just focused on one issue. And so I would tend to think that most people who are, uh, to use the phrase, growing out of the rapture or who decide not to be believers in the rapture anymore, they do so because they start studying the Bible from uh, the reformers or they start studying in amillennial, post millennial churches, which God can use greatly. And part of that is teaching against the rapture. But there's also a lot of good Bible teaching that comes with that. Presumably, and so that could have a great effect in how their lives turn around, and I think that that's that's helpful to understand holistically what could be happening. Now, this the whole interview goes about twenty eight minutes. We're not uh, going to go through all of it. I think uh, we'll probably wrap it up here in just a second. Uh, DeMar talks about how eschatology does relate to everything, and I, he's actually correct in that. Uh, because eschatology does interrelate to all the different doctrines of scripture. The question is, what kind of effect does it have? And I'm, like I said earlier, I'm not persuaded that uh, one's belief in the rapture is going to dictate whether or not they mow the lawn or things like that. Now, there is one more example, and I want to play that for us because, again, I think it's just in line of this or in, in what we've been talking about, I think it's just a mischaracterization of how the rapture affects uh, life. And this is uh, the guy who's talking now is I believe his name is Gabriel Wrench. He's uh, one of the normal hosts for Cross Politic, and he's going to give a personal testimony about
2: uh, his family and all that's relate with that. So he's a Roman Catholic growing up and, and got saved by navigators in college probably a typical story for his generation in a lot of ways. Uh but his default kind of eschatological view was pre You know, he became a Christian, navigators, and then just pre Uh when he had um my my wife is the second child of the family. So this is um, his father. She was a really difficult child. No and, and yeah no. believe it or not, I, yeah. No. Two difficult kids, two difficult kids found each other, and married <laughs> each other. What you know? Um and, and after having her they stopped having kids because uh, because they're like this is gonna get worse the world's gonna get worse and we just had this last we had this really bad child this really difficult child and so they stopped having kids well they became reformed about two and a half years later and and ended up having seven daughters so it actually affected um, practically how they view having children how they raise children and how many kids they end up end up having and so uh, practically how we we view about the, the how we View the cross. How optimistically we view the, the cross. Gospel. Does Jesus yeah, win? Right. Yeah, does, yeah, yeah. You know, does the gospel win? Does, is Jesus King, and does He win? Well, that ultimately is going to affect how many you know. Well, because that, that's that's thinking long terming.
0: Okay, so he actually didn't finish his sentence, but I think he was going to say uh, it ultimately affects how many kids you have. That sounds like what he was going to say, but then he like stopped. I don't know if he was trying to catch himself or not, but that's oh man. So if that's where he was going, that sounds like what he was saying. And, uh, you know, just talking about how his family's eschatological belief influenced how many kids they had. Uh, there's, there's a couple things, uh, that I was thinking about as I was going through that. On the one hand, uh, he makes it sound as if the eschatological, uh, belief was behind the having kids or not. That's possible. I suppose. Um, I don't want to discount that again, but, Again, I could counter that example with uh, the pre-tribulational believing rapture uh, or the families that believe in a pre-tribulational rapture that have 15 kids. You know, it's, so it, we can't argue on the basis of, of that because that's not indicative of the view. Uh, just because somebody believes that the rapture is coming and that the world's going to get worse and worse doesn't actually mean they don't have kids. Uh, because a lot of the families, believe me, uh, uh, coming to a uh, colonial Baptist here in North Carolina, you have a lot of, uh, homeschool families, which have a lot of kids and most of those families believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. It's, it has no bearing on uh, how many kids they have. And so in reality, uh, if that's the case, uh, I'm not sure that's a strong argument because you can throw out a million other examples that counter counteract that, but additionally, I think it would be uh he talks about viewing the cross positively in the sense that in the postmillennial viewpoint the world's gonna keep getting better and better and better, but that can't and and I believe I'm representing post millennial uh, viewpoint uh accurately and fairly when I say this that wouldn't minimize the uh, negative repercussion or the regressions that could take place. So j- that doesn't mean it has to, con- it's like the stock market. It doesn't mean that it always has to keep getting better or going up. There can be a crash where you have a time of negative uh, oppression and things like that. And so even in post theology, I don't understand I think there is wisdom in understanding that there's times and seasons to have families, to have bigger families, or to uh, even maybe not even get married. Uh, and by the way, I'm basing most of this on Paul's discussion in 1 Corinthians 7, by the way. When I was listening to this interview the first time, that's what popped into my head in 1 Corinthians seven twenty six, where Paul says that he encourages the Corinthians to remain as they are, i.e. single if they're single or married if they're married, because of the, quote, present distress that they find themselves in. So even in Paul's mind, there seems to be present circumstances, tribulations, if you will, that affect whether or not you have a family. Uh, because it would just be uh, more difficult in that season of life and possibly distracting and extremely detrimental. So I would be curious to to see how they would think through 1 Corinthians 7 with regard to this topic, because it sounds like they're saying, oh yeah, we just need families. Uh, we just need to always keep having kids. But it sounds like even the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 recognized something about that present situation where he encouraged the Corinthian believers not to have uh, families if they were already single to not pursue marriage and families. And so it seems like there's some possibility there for I, wisdom to interact. And And I know even certain missionaries that go into certain parts of the world uh, would be extremely limited if they had massive families And so there needs to be wisdom considerations involved in that. And I don't think it's fair at all to say that if you believe in a rapture, you're not going to have many kids. And if you are believing that Christ's work on the cross cross is going to be very positive, then you're going to have a huge family and be obedient to God's will. You know, that's to me, if this is how you argue against the rapture showing the quote-unquote practical ramifications of uh, believing in a rapture, I think that you're not going to win anybody over uh, with this kind of argumentation. And it's really, I think, uh, for people who are post-millennial or uh, struggling with belief in the rapture, it's going to show the weakness of your position, honestly. And so... We'll talk in more detail about in, in other episodes uh, about some of the positive presentations they make, uh, not from this interview, but I'm going to track down some of the other stuff that I'm aware of that DeMar has done uh, with regard to uh, arguing f- for post-millennialism and things like that on occasion. But I figured this episode would be a nice little uh, change of pace, uh, talking a little bit about eschatological matters and the ramifications that are there. and. Uh, We'll move on to something else next time, but I hope it's helpful just to see how some people uh, think through the rapture and, and the arguments that they use against it. And, you know, while I'm reviewing this, I have to be honest, I don't think that these are strong arguments at all. And I think that they just fall apart rather easily, right? But this is a very famous podcast. This is a very famous author who's written lots of books against the rapture. And if this is the best that they have to offer... It's really kind of sad when you when you look at this this kind of argumentation. So I I wanted to point that out. But of course we do love them. I have like I said friends who are post millennial, and he and I have really good friend, uh, conversations. I'm thinking of one in particular who who we really talk through a lot of issues together, and it's it's a lot of fun. I, I thoroughly enjoy that. Uh, and so hopefully if you run across somebody who uses these kind of arguments, you'll know better how to think. But if it's not helpful, don't worry. We're moving on and we're going on to other things now. But in the meantime, we'd love to continue to hear from you with episode ideas or just feedback, uh, um, criticisms, uh, if you want to you know, tell me that I should get off the airwaves of the podcast world. I'm all ears. You can reach out to me at peter at petergamon.com. If you want to find out more about me or see some of the blog articles I've written, you can go to petergamon.com. If you want to visit the website for Shepherd's Theological Seminary, you can visit Shepherd's.edu. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.